Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. I'm your host, John Thompson, and on this show, I'm joined by Father Bernard Utley, OSB, a traditional Benedictine priest who serves Our Lady of Victory Catholic Church in London, Ontario. Restoration Radio is pleased to present the spiritual life free of charge to our listeners by the generous sponsorship of the Catholic Mission in Canada. If you wish to receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit our website, restorationradionetwork.com. Go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. Alternatively, you can purchase individual episodes on the same website just by searching for them and following the links. Restoration Radio episodes are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. If you are listening to our content through either of these, please be sure to leave ratings and reviews. This will make it easier for our content to be found by those who are searching for truly Catholic programming. This episode is part three of a series we started last November. Today, we're going to be discussing meditation, which is just one aspect of mental prayer. Father? Yes, uh, in last episode, we discussed vocal prayer, and today we'll be discussing mental prayer. And as you said, it's very important to make that distinction between mental prayer and meditation. Mental prayer includes all prayer that is primarily interior, that is, the prayer that stays within the mind and will, and not generally vocalized in any way. And as I said last time, uh, public prayer is always vocal prayer. Mental prayer is private and personal prayer. The distinction between mental prayer and meditation is important because mental prayer is the larger concept of the two. All meditation is mental prayer, but not all mental prayer is meditation. Contemplation is also mental prayer. And contemplation is a very huge subject, very important, and one of my favorite topics of the spiritual life and something that will take at least two shows to cover. Hmm. I look forward to that. But today I wanted to focus on the kind of mental prayer which we call meditation. Let's just talk about first mental prayer in general. As I said in the previous episodes on prayer, prayer is raising the mind and heart to God in order to converse with him in some way. It is speaking with God or speaking to God. But we can speak to God in three ways. The prayer may be either in thought only, unexpressed in any external way, or, on the other hand, the secret thoughts and feelings of the soul may be clothed in words. And these words may be either confined to a set form or formula, or they may be words of our own. Now, when our conversation with God is entirely interior and mental, this is mental prayer properly so-called. When we talk to God using a formula, it's called vocal prayer. And then there's a mixture of the two, a mixture of mental and vocal prayer, as in the case of expressing our own thoughts to God in our own words. This mixed type of prayer is, re is really mental prayer because the words are our own. We're just expressing it. But th the point is that mental prayer is more spontaneous, more from the heart, and it's not imposed on you from the outside, like in a formula. It's crucial to understand in the spiritual life and in, in the life of prayer. It's crucial to understand that prayer can be entirely interior or mental. It doesn't have to be expressed vocally to be prayer. It can be expressed, but it's not essential to prayer to be expressed. And why is this? It's because God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have 
eyes or ears. He doesn't have to see your lips moving to know that you're praying. He doesn't have to hear the sound of your voice to know that you're praying. He's a pure spirit. He's all-knowing and he's omnipresent. So he knows all your thoughts and every movement of your heart and your will, even before you form those thoughts or those inclinations or, or acts of the will. He knows you perfectly. He reads your heart perfectly, infallibly. And also because of his omnipresence, he is present in the depths of your soul. He's present in your mind and your heart. He's closer to you than you are to yourself. So he definitely reads your heart perfectly. And that's the foundation of mental prayer, that we can simply speak to God in our hearts, whether it's in, you know, there's two ways of speaking to yourself. We do it all the time. We can actually have an interior conversation where there's actually words and sentences, and you can speak to God in that way. But there's also a way of speaking to yourself in just thoughts, just ideas, just concepts. And you're not making sentences out of them, paragraphs and holding a artificial interior conversation. So that's another way of speaking to God. And that's important to remember. And we'll get into that a little later as well. And one of the reasons why this has to be the case, that we can speak to God in purely mental thoughts and mental words. If you look at the case of sin, if we're able to sin against God in our thoughts alone, there has to be a way to praise him and adore him in thoughts alone. I think that makes sense, doesn't it? It works both ways. Well, yeah, the, the, obviously, yeah, if you can do one, you can do the other. I think when you get right down to it, though, without mental prayer, there's really no prayer at all. And this is something that St. Teresa of Avila hinted at. There's really no worship, no Catholic religion, at least as far as our soul's contact with God is concerned. Prayer is really the heart of our faith when you get down to it. It's the soul's communication with God. Mental prayer is really the foundation, the heart of the spiritual life. You can't really call a set form of words prayer unless the mind has something to do with it, unless the will is involved as well. I recall in one of the plays of Shakespeare, I think it's in Hamlet, Shakespeare spoke as a kind of theologian at the time when he put into the mouth of King Claudius, who asked for pardon, and he didn't really have repentance in his heart, but he asked for pardon. And he said these words, very profound, my words go up, thoughts remain below, words without thoughts never to heaven go. Hmm. And it's basically saying in a nutshell, without mental prayer, vocal prayer means nothing, right? It, God's not looking just to the lips, he looks to your mind and heart. Yeah, it's just words otherwise. <clears throat> One of the problems, I think, in the whole idea of mental prayer, it's easy to become intimidated with the concept of mental prayer. Unfortunately, it's made to appear, made to seem very complicated and difficult and, and reserved for only very intelligent people. It's mental prayer. It's very intelligent. The word mental itself seems to imply really heavy brain work and intelligence and lots of reasoning and syllogisms and fancy logic and things. And this is especially true of meditation, discursive meditation, as it's called. It sounds quite difficult. And frankly, some books and some authors and some schools of spirituality, I think they present meditation as a complicated thing. But it really isn't. It doesn't have to be complicated. And that is why I want to get across, most of all in today's show, that meditation doesn't have to be complicated or difficult. It's simple. And everyone can and must practice mental prayer in one form or another. And everyone really does practice meditation. 
but it might not be in a very structured, methodical way, but everyone does that. Everyone thinks about God or thinks about our Lord at one time or another in their life, and they're moved mm-hmm. to, to make an act of the will. So they think of the passion, and it brings them contrition. It brings them sorrow for their sins. That's meditation. That's all it is. Thinking about something and then making an act of the will. So mental prayer is really just talking to God, conversation with Christ, conversation with God. And St. Teresa of Avila, who I quoted last show as well, gives her classical definition of mental prayer. And it's always important to go back to her words so we don't lose sight of the whole heart of mental prayer. She said, mental prayer is nothing else than an intimate friendship, a frequent heart-to-heart conversation with him by whom we know ourselves to be loved. So look at those words, the emphasis on intimate friendship, heart-to-heart conversation. That doesn't sound too complicated. No. It's just talking to a friend. No, and actually it, it reminds me of long-time friends like spouses or people that you've known a long time. You can get to a point with someone that they don't even have to say something. They don't have to say anything. You can tell just by their face or just by something they do, or even not even that. You just know, okay, a situation comes up, you know what they're going to do and say. Right. And so you are communicating with them, but you're not even saying anything. Right. Yeah, it's amazing, actually, how the human love and human relationship mirrors in a small way the, the relationship between the soul and God, that the progression of love and friendship follows on similar lines. Hmm. Uh, It's like when you first meet someone, okay, you're talking a lot, you're conversing, you're asking a lot of questions, you're trying to learn each other, learn about each other, and then it becomes less and less over time, and sometimes just one word means volumes. And then, as you said, you can get to the point where really just a grunt or a sigh can mean everything, you know, and that's really, meditation is really getting to know God, and contemplation is the silence of lovers, Hmm. Just being in the presence of someone you love, just looking at them and they looking at you. And that's being enough. There's no words need to be said. And that's what we're all trying to get to. We're trying to get to know God so well that you feel comfortable in his presence and just love him. Just be with him. You don't want to fall in love with thoughts about God. You want God himself. That's really what, what contemplation is. It's just simply the fruit of love. Yeah, and actually, sometimes with people in love, you can get to the point where one of them talks too much, and the other says, just shut up, stupid. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> you know, I just yeah. want to be with you. Right, we right. Don't yeah. have to talk. And, and yeah. I think God does that to us many times, or we don't listen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we talk right. too much. Yeah. But that, again, that's it gets back to the whole point I was trying to get the last show, is that progress in prayer is progress towards simplicity mm. and unity, not complexity and multiplicity. That's not traditional Catholicism. We're not aiming for that. So that's mental prayer. You are using your head more with meditation, with methodical meditation. And as I said, there is a distinction between mental prayer and meditation for that reason. Meditation is more the use of the brain. It helps you in your mental prayer. But there is that distinction. Well, I wonder then, what is meditation? How would you define it? Okay. The Catholic idea of meditation is different than, say, the idea of Buddhist meditation or New Age meditation that gets thrown around today. And I'm not an expert on, you know, say, Buddhist meditation or Zen Buddhist. 
philosophy or anything of that nature. But you get the idea from Buddhism and Hinduism and New Age, where their idea of meditation is a kind of emptying of the mind. It's kind of a drone or, you know, in order to arrive maybe at a sense of peace or or to have a concentration of the mind, uh, it's like a technique of emptying the mind in order to maybe uh, arrive at an altered state of consciousness in some form or another. It's kind of like yoga. Mm -hmm. Um, But in Catholic spirituality, meditation is thinking out of a religious subject with the ultimate practical aim at stirring the will of man to make acts of faith and love and humility towards God and also to form practical resolutions that actually reform your life. So basically, meditation is thinking about the truths of the faith or an event in the life of Christ or his passion and death in order to love him more, in order to grow in that that friendship. But there is thinking, thinking, and that's where you get meditation is from. So it's definitely different from the uh, New Age concept of meditation of just emptying. Mm, That's good because the New Age concept of meditation is just so prevalent and it's so popularized and... Every modern book that you want to pick up in the bookstore about meditation is on this new age kind of meditation. Right. And, and you'll come across people that say, you know, oh, I meditate. I, I, I do meditation. Yeah. I like to sit, you know, near a waterfall and meditate. They're not really meditating in a Catholic sense. They're not, they're not trying to fill their mind with God mm. and thoughts about God and thoughts about our Lord and, and his passion and death or his presence in the Blessed Sacrament or the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. They don't meditate on those subjects. They meditate on nothing or they meditate on just a general vague concept of something, I don't know, life yeah, force yeah. or something. Those yeah, are it, different. It, it strikes me that uh, the act of meditating to empty your mind is peculiarly suited for modern man. <laughs> so it's, it's actually, yeah, it's actually quite opposite to the Catholic idea. And that's basically what meditation is, is thinking about God, thinking about a mystery of the faith, and then making an act of love. In recent centuries, and when I say recent centuries, that means from the 15th or 16th century, it's become common to have a more systematized method or scheme for meditation. And they have become, in some cases, quite complicated. Pre-Reformation spirituality was much more simple, more contemplative way of life. And contemplation, that silence of lovers, was looked upon as the normal goal of the spiritual life. And back then, meditation was quite simple. Like I just laid out, as you grow in your knowledge and your friendship with God, you're going to try to learn things about God, about Christ, learn his life, because you're getting to know someone. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to know them, you fall in love with them, and you just want to spend time with them. Now... Post-Reformation spirituality, they made the method of meditation a little bit more complicated to help you get to know God, but they kept you in that stage forever. Mm. And that would be artificial for a human relationship, just always to just try to learn more and more facts about someone, more and more knowledge, but never shut up and never just love them and be in their presence Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you always have to be thinking. If you're not thinking, you're wasting your time. Now, you wouldn't do that to two people in love. You wouldn't say, well, you're not talking. You're not doing, you're just wasting your time being together. Love is never a waste of time. Yeah. It's like you're you're stuck at the dating agency. Right. right, right. You're you're stuck. 
or you know in the religious uh, to use a religious analogy you're always a novice you never profess. oh yeah right yeah you know, or yeah you're always in the dating stage you never get married so right you never grow in that uh, mature love mm-hmm. and so as a benedictine you know i tend to prefer the pre-reformation spirituality it's a more contemplative approach to spiritual life and that has really died out in recent times um mm-hmm. The authors are there. The authority is there. And that's why I purposely add quotes and things in these episodes. So people don't get the false notion that this is just my fringe ideas, you know, because mm. people don't normally hear these things. And I, I understand that the things I say in these shows generally don't hear too often from the pulpits and in publications and things, because this spirituality has unfortunately been obscured for centuries the more contemplative approach. Hmm. So in meditation, I'm not a big fan of too much method, too much complication. And uh, I'll explain why as we go on, and it'll become very clear. But let me give just one example of a method of meditation. And I take this from an outline given by Father Tankery in his really classic uh, ascetical and mystical textbook called The Spiritual Life. And this was used in many seminaries well, before Vatican II, it was used at the seminary in Toronto and yeah. in London, I know. It's probably used in every English-speaking country in the world. And uh, it was used in the Society of St. Pius X Seminary. Yeah, it's a very good book. I will, especially an upcoming show on contemplation, I will have reason to criticize something of Father Tankery's treatment of contemplation and okay. the Dark Night of the Senses. I'm not a personal fan of this book for that reason, mm-hmm. because he, I think he makes a fatal flaw in his placement of the dark night of the senses. But the textbook does have great value okay. uh, for other re- reasons. And he, he gives a good outline on meditation and these earlier stages of prayer. The first method that Father Tankery gives is that of St. Ignatius of Loyola. And in his famous spiritual exercises, St. Ignatius gives many methods of mental prayer, but the one best adapted to beginners is the one called the exercise of three faculties. Now, a faculty is a power of the soul. And the three he is referring to here are memory, the understanding, and the will. And these are the chief powers of the soul. Now, I will try to present this method in as simple and brief a way as I can. His method is divided into three main sections, the beginning, the middle, and the end, or the prelude, the body of the meditation, and the conclusion. And each section has subsections to it. Hmm. So I'll break it up. Number one, the prelude consists in a rapid recall of the truth or event to be considered. For example, let us set before ourselves the crowning of our Lord with thorns. Okay, Hmm. after he had been scourged. So you just briefly recall that's what we're going to think about. Now you have the composition of place. Use your imagination. Quickly imagine our Lord sitting in a stone courtyard surrounded by Roman soldiers jeering at him and mocking him. And think of our blessed Savior's body torn to shreds by the brutal scourging he had just received and now being uh, crowned with a, a crown of very sharp thorns. So, again, you composition a place, you place everyone, all the actors, all the uh, scenery. And then you make a petition to God for a special grace and harmony with the subject. And really, the sky's the limit. There's so many things that you could ask for 
from this, you know, greater humility or patience or purity in our thoughts or something like that. And so all this, the prelude just sets the stage. See, when you have an outline like this, there is sections and subsections and sub-subsections and mm-hmm. sub- it can look very complicated, but really you could do all of those three points in 10 seconds. You really could. Mm-hmm. It, it, you don't have to be labored for take each point and take an hour to figure it out. Then we come to the body of the meditation. So because this is called the exercise with the three faculties, the memory, understanding, and the will, you start with the memory. So with our memory, you represent yourself, the subject as a whole, anything in it, the chief circumstances of of the event. So again, picture our Lord being crowned with thorns. Try to remember more details, you know, before we just kind of set the stage really briefly, a quick, brief review. Now try to remember more details about this mystery of the crowning with thorns, at least the more important ones. You know, our Lord had just been scourged brutally. His bones are showing. He's, he's bleeding profusely. He's exhausted. And the soldiers wrapped him in a purple robe to mock his royalty. And they placed a reed in his hand for a king's scepter. And, uh, and then the soldiers are violently crowning him with a crown of thorns and you know, some people talk about the crown being almost like a helmet, mm. not just a little ring around his brow, but matted into this big, huge mess that is just like a helmet. And then imagine the soldiers spitting on him and slapping him and mocking him and making mock genuflections and hailing him as a king, but really out of contempt and mockery. Mm. And then next, go to the understanding. And here, St. Ignatius, or rather Father Tanqueray, lays out different questions that we could ask ourselves. What should I consider in this subject? What is really being presented to me? You know, his sufferings, we can consider his sufferings, how great they must have been. You can think of what sins that you have committed that may have added to this particular suffering. You can think of pride, your pride being the cause. Think of his humility and and how much you need humility There's all lots of different thoughts. Purity of thought. Our Lord here is making reparation for sins of thought in general, having a, a, you know, thorns going through his skull. And then what practical conclusion should I draw from it? Uh, Again, the evilness of sinful thoughts. You know, you could draw that from it. And all these, these are just quick outlines, but you can ponder on each idea. What are my motives in drawing these conclusions? really your own experience of your own sinful thoughts and knowing how proud we have been, you know, try to make it a little more personal and how we want to be pure in our thoughts, how we want to be humble. Another question we could ask ourselves is how have I lived up to this practical point of being pure in our thoughts or humble in our thoughts? And unfortunately, some of us not very well. So make it personal, make make the, the thought of our Lord being crowned with thorns as something that actually that you're a part of and that it applies to you. What must I do in the future the better to conform my life to this mystery, to these thoughts? And so you think, how can I improve myself? First of all, we can remember our Lord's sufferings more often. Remember what he went through for you. You can try not to think that your petty pains are too much to bear when you think of how much our Lord suffered for you. Look at how how often we complain if we have a little headache. Mm. And if you thought about our Lord suffering with the crown of thorns on his head, our pains are nothing compared to that. You know, just to put things in perspective. 
And then you can think of what obstacles must I remove to, to grow in, in these virtues of humility and purity of thought. The obstacles, you know, avoid the occasions of sin or custody of the eyes or whatever. And actually, that's more of what means must I employ. So, again, custody of the eyes and stuff. Don't let yourself throw pity parties. And there's lots of things that we could apply to ourselves here. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I'm familiar with this whole process. I find the whole thing a bit overwhelming when I try to go through it because it just seems like there's so many questions and I yeah. just don't know where to start. And it seems like there's a couple of hours of setup just yeah. for something that's going to take me about 10 minutes to do. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. It, it gets, it's just so complicated, it right. seems. And that's what I was saying, that it, it does get it, it does get intimidating for people but I'll talk about, you know, ways that we could simplify it or look upon it that may simplify it. But when you do look in Father Tankery's book and you have like a big outline, you have 10 questions and then sub questions and then different parts. It does get like, I don't have a PhD. I can't do this. You know, like you can gets, tell it comes from a Jesuit because right. that's sort of that's how they think. Right. Which is good. I mean, it's good for them. They're very intelligent and, you know, it's very complete and structured. But for right. the average person, it just is overwhelming. Yeah. I think that's slightly a misconception of this. You know, I'm laying it out. There's breaking it apart. But I think we can look upon it a little bit more simple way. But, yeah, I think that is the, the danger of, of this methodical meditation. That becomes too many questions. It's too complicated. Well, let's go on to the next section quickly, mm -hmm. the exercises of the will. And this is the most important part, really, is that these thoughts about our Lord, for example, or any mystery that you could think about. And you can meditate on anything. You can meditate on the goodness of God. You can meditate on his mercy. You can meditate on his justice. You can meditate about heaven. You can meditate about purgatory or, or hell. And or just take certain aspects of those mysteries. For example, if you meditated on hell, but you could think about just the idea of being deprived of the vision of God forever. You could just meditate just on one idea of having no hope anymore. And and how that, that's quite a scary thought. Mm -hmm. When you put that in, when you actually think about all the ramifications of actually going to hell and having no hope, there is no more chances. It's absolutely over. That can become terrifying, you know, and it, it can be motivation to go, I'm not going to go there. And I don't care what it takes or what sacrifices, I'm not going there, right? Yeah. And that's the fruit. That's what meditation is when you get down to it. It's simply taking a thought and trying to draw a practical application and it actually affecting you. And that's a good example. Or heaven. And think how great it will be to be with God. Think how great it will be to see God face to face, see our Lord in the flesh, see our Blessed Mother, see the angels and saints, and to be perfectly satisfied and happy forever. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get there. That's mm -hmm. what meditation is, is you take a thought and the fruit of it is an act of the will. I want that or I don't want that. Right. So that's really what meditation is when you boil it down to. It's a thought resulting in an act. Mm -hmm. So now when we, we used our memory, we used our understanding to try to penetrate deeper into different ideas of the mystery. And now we have to exercise our will. And this is affections of the heart, affection of the will, acts of love for God, acts of love for our Lord. I love you. Thank you so much for suffering for me. Thank you so much for making reparation for my sins. Please help me, Lord, not to fall into those sins again. Those are affections. Those are our acts of the will. And then there's also resolutions that I will not do that again. I will do this instead. 
and you make practical resolutions that are personal and, and humble mm-hmm. at the end. And then we come to the conclusion of the meditation. Often authors put as a conclusion a colloquy, and it simply means a conversation mm. with God, with our Lord, with the Blessed Mother, with the saints. We usually don't use that word colloquy. I'm going to have a colloquy with someone, but it simply means conversation. So make it personal with our Lord. And then Father Tanqueray lists another section at the end called the review. And you have a series of multiple questions. It's not an exam, you know, you know, the hand in the paper, but he, he listed questions like, how have I made this meditation in general? Did I fail? You know, wherein have I failed or succeeded? The third one is, what practical conclusions have I drawn? What requests have I made? And what resolutions have I formed? So it's, it's kind of just going over it briefly in your head of the highlights kind of, of, of the meditation. And then at the end, choose a thought as a reminder of the meditation, something that, that really struck you, that kind of maybe sums up the whole thing in a, in a nutshell. Hmm. And I believe St. Francis de Sales called this a spiritual nosegay uh, in one of the books. I guess that's the, the English translation that you had. And I don't know what that means. I've never, like, nosegay. I, I think it's a, it's a term that's not used anymore. It's really a spiritual bouquet. I think yeah, that's what I, it is, I think right? a nosegay is like a little a flower that you little take away. thing of flowers that you get that smells nice. Right. And that was the concept. You and take no, nose and gay means happy nose, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. Exactly. Something makes your nose feel good. But as a teenager, I was reading his book. I think it was the introduction to the devout life. And yeah. he lays out a method of meditation that's yeah. somewhat similar, I guess. And a spiritual nosegay at the end. I guess that was the English translation. I remember, what is a nosegay? <laughs> it doesn't sound right. You know, that's weird. Yeah. But that's really what it is. A spiritual bouquet, like little flowers, in a sense of ideas that you can smell later on. You, throughout the day, you can go back to those thoughts and recall kind of the whole meditation in, in a phrase. Yeah, I, I knew a priest who called that uh, like an all-day sucker, like a, <laughs> kind of a candy that you'd get that you'd, you could just suck on all day, and it would be, hmm, okay. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. If you are just joining us, you are listening to The Spiritual Life on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, John Thompson, and I'm joined by Father Bernard Utley, OSB, and today we've been discussing meditation. The Spiritual Life is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. Now, there, there are many methods out there, and they're all more or less similar to this method of St. Ignatius. There's also a method of St. Sulpice. St. Francis de Sales, as I said, has a method in his Introduction to the Devout Life. There's Carmelite methods. There's some Benedictine writers that have given methods. Really, almost every book that's a meditation book has their own little method in there. The main problem with so many methods is that it can be intimidating, confusing, and complicated. But it really doesn't have to. When I boil it down to what meditation is, it's simply thinking about God and then making acts of love. Mm-hmm. Thinking about something holy and then making practical resolutions. That's all it is. And all these other things, it can get complicated. I admit you have preparation, preludes, considerations, sections and subsections and questions. Point one, point two A, point three A, you know, yeah. affections, resolutions, colloquies. It can be crazy. It's it's just terminology thrown at us. And I think this is a misconception of really the whole purpose of meditation. The The main 
point here is that you don't have to become a slave to any of these methods. Use a method if you find it helpful. Use them as a guide. Use it as an inspiration, as a means of focusing your mind on a subject. But as soon as any of these methods kills devotion and it confuses you and, and makes things harder to pray, then get rid of it. If it makes it harder to pray, don't use it. Because the whole point is there to help you to pray, not to be an obstacle. There's too many obstacles. And on, on that point about these methods just being means to an end, I came across something that St. Francis de Sales says. He wrote in his directory of religious, he wrote, many deceive themselves thinking that to pray well, much method is necessary. And they worry themselves seeking a system which they think is indispensable. I do not say that they should not make use of the methods taught by the saints. What I say is that the soul should not be completely tied to them, as happens to some who never think they have made their prayer well if they do not go through the considerations before the affections the Lord gives them, whereas these affections are the purpose of the considerations. Such people are like those who, finding themselves close to the place they are traveling to, turn back without entering it, because they have not got there by the way they were shown. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah this, isn't, this isn't the way, the directions I was given. I'll have to turn back and follow. No, you're there, so don't worry about the direction. Huh. Uh, St. Jane Francis de Chantal, who was a disciple of St. Francis de Sales, they start a visitation order together. Hmm. A very contemplative order, by the way. Quite impressed with them. She says, the great method of prayer is that there should be no method. Hmm. If when we go to prayer, we could turn ourselves into a pure capacity for receiving the Spirit of God, this would replace all methods. Prayer should be accomplished by grace and not by artifice. So it's not just a technique. Prayer is not just a technique. It's not a Zen Buddhist technique. And this is the, the problem, which we'll talk next show about centering prayer and all these techniques. They want to turn you into a contemplative and um, an artificial technical way. And it's really a grace. It's falling in love with God. These methods are means to an end. So what's the end of meditation? I've said this. Prayer is the end. Merely thinking about holy subjects is not prayer. That's why meditation, strictly speaking, is not prayer. It's thinking about God. And that's not prayer. You can pay someone on the street to do that. You can have a computer spit out things about God. Thinking about about God is not prayer, but making acts of the will towards God. Because and even an atheist can think about God, but they're not going to say, God, I love you. Mm -hmm. So mere thoughts are dead. Thoughts without love is dead, really. So prayer only begins, true prayer only begins when you start making acts of the will. And these could be acts of faith or hope or love or contrition or adoration or thanksgiving. It's not just an abstract intellectual action. So then you could train, if you have the opportunity, you could train a whole group of people to go through this method. Right. But only those who end up making acts of the will are the ones that really know how to do it. Right. The rest are just going through the motions. Right, right. Yeah, or at least you, you say they're meditating, they're, they're thinking about these things, but they haven't prayed yet. Hmm. They haven't prayed. Prayer is really when you start making acts of the will. This goes back to the common misconception about meditation is that you have to be intelligent to do it or it takes a lot of brain power. People like to think of meditation as preaching a sermon to yourself. Mm. And they're like, I can't do that. I, I can't come up with an eloquent and polished sermon on the fly like that. Well, priests usually can't either. They take time to prepare a sermon. 
Yeah, but even an experienced priest would have a hard time preaching a sermon to himself because there's no surprise in it. There's no, like, he's heard it before. Right, right. And the other thing about meditation, it's not, you're not trying to come up with new thoughts. Hmm. You're not trying to figure out new things about the faith. You're not trying to find out new, like, a complex theological reasoning. That's not the purpose of meditation. Meditation is simply like thinking about God to move you to love him. That's it. Maybe you'll learn something new. Maybe, you know, as you're thinking, you'll go, oh, I never thought of that that way. That's great. But that's kind of accidental. That's not the, the most important point. If you go back to an old thought that you find edifying and you keep thinking about that old thought over and every single day and it moves you every day to, to love our Lord a little more, you haven't learned anything new, but you've gotten more and more out of that. That little light that you've received, you've produced a lot of heat Hmm. from it. And that's a perfect meditation, but you've never learned anything. Hmm. Okay, I kind of like that comparison that meditating, the point is not to produce light, but it's to produce heat. Yeah, I guess that would be, that's a good way of putting it. Hmm. Definitely. I think St. Francis de Sales uh, would use this type of analogy. He liked to use nature all the time for analogies. It's like a bee going to a flower, sucking all the pollen out before you go to the next one. You're not trying to get to as many as possible, figure out new ones. Hmm, Right. That's why it doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be novel. It doesn't have to be new. If you want to think about the scourging of our Lord every day, but you'll get more out of that, then that's fine. You can do that. There's two different views of the purpose of meditation that, depending on the book that you pick up or the the, running all through the literature on the subject, Mm -hmm. and sometimes the more reflective nature is stressed as a means of building convictions and growing in our idea of God or the knowledge of our Lord's life and other supernatural truths, almost like it's a kind of study. Hmm. You're learning about the faith. And so these authors look upon meditation more as a work of the head. And then there's the other way of looking at it as more of the work of the heart and that the aim of meditation, as I, as I believe, that it's really there to stir up and excite the will and the hmm. affections. So we have to build our convictions. We have to grow in our knowledge of God and the truths of the faith. And just look at all the shows in this series on the spiritual life. I've tried to show where the dogmas of the faith are the foundations of the spiritual life and the doctrines are so important as nourishment. But when it comes to prayer, the intellect is not as important as the will, the goodwill. And especially in prayer and meditation, it's not study. It's not an intellectual exercise. It is conversation with God. God's not looking so much for scholars and theologians in prayer. He's looking for lovers who are humble and simple and all on fire for him. So theologians have all the motives for loving God intensely, but not all of them do. And in this life, the love of God is more important than abstract knowledge about him, truths about God. The kind of knowledge our Lord wants for us, uh, more importantly, is knowledge born from love, more personal knowledge. And you can know all about someone and yet not know them personally, not have any closeness to them. So these two approaches the meditation, the one of the head, one of the heart. I think the one of the heart is the more traditional view, Mm -hmm. uh, the more contemplative approach. Abbot Eugene Boylan, in his wonderful little book, which I highly recommend, and I'll remind the listeners at the end of the show, it's called Difficulties in Mental Prayer, published in 1943. Excellent, excellent book. He takes the same view of the purpose of meditation, and I I wanted to read his words quickly here. He writes, 
No one can question the value of systematic reflection for the formation of the spiritual life, but there are many souls who find such difficulty in persevering in it that they are in danger of giving up the exercise without providing any substitute for it. To lessen that danger, we have stressed the effective aspect of mental prayer and at the same time insisted on the importance of spiritual reading. In our view, both mental prayer and spiritual reading are normally essential for a healthy spiritual life. We look to spiritual reading and the consequent informal reflection to which it leads for the formation of those ideas and convictions that are sought by systematic meditation. And I will come back to that again just in a little bit, that the best way I think today anyways to really grow in our convictions and our knowledge of the faith is not through the methodical meditation, at least not in these days, because we're not trained in reasoning. We're not trained in thinking. Mm -hmm. We're not trained in concentration. I think the best way today is to have a healthy dose of spiritual reading. And I would say it'd be best in a week that we should spend at least three hours during the week. However, you split that up, but it's better to do a little bit every day than to put it all on three hours on Sunday. Mm -hmm. uh, just like if we ate a meal, it's better to spread out the food during the week instead of eat all the meals at once on one day, right? Yeah, yeah. Eat everything and then fast for six days. Right. right? You wouldn't make it. Kind of crazy. Yeah. Right? It'd be unhealthy. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't digest half of the nourishment. Mm. Right. So I found this many years ago from a great Benedictine uh, cardinal. Cardinal uh, Francis Aidan Gasquet, who was a historian. Mm -hmm. He was quite the scholar. And he said this, I must confess that for some years, I myself had a wrong notion of the real object of mental prayer and of how to secure the spiritual advantages which I felt should be derived from this exercise. Subsequent experience has taught me that to some extent, this loss of precious time and grace was the consequence of misunderstanding the nature of the exercise itself. No doubt it was my own fault that for so long a period I had this wrong notion. What I thought was the chief thing to be aimed at was the mental exercise, the clear thinking out of the subject of meditation, and that the prayer came in merely as a conclusion, a sort of grace of thanksgiving after the intellectual meal. Looking back to those early years, I recall the frequent failures and consequent disgust with myself and not being able to think out clearly the subject which I had chosen for my morning meditation. I remember that it came upon me during a retreat almost as a revelation that I had been altogether on the wrong track in regard to my meditation and that the sole purpose of mental prayer was to endeavor to draw nigh unto God, to bring him practically into my life and to speak to him in intimate converse. Oh, the precious opportunities wasted in formalities and preparations, in useless, useless so far as their purpose was considered, cogitations and reflections upon religious subjects of all kinds. Afterwards, I came to know that I was not alone in the wrong notions I had formed about the true nature and object of mental prayer. As in my own case, I found other souls who had been for years struggling in vain to make profit out of their hours of meditation. They had not grasped the notion that the whole object of the exercise was by it to strengthen the sense of God's intimate and abiding presence in the soul and to speak to him of their needs and plead with him for their infidelities to his grace, unquote. And that is from his book, Religio Religiosi, in 1923. It's about the religious life in general and about his vocation. Hmm. 
So that's, a, again, that's a common misconception. It's meditation is more of a mental thing, very intellectual, and that the prayer just comes at the end, a little, you know, a little petition at the end. And really, that's the whole point. You want to lead up to that petition. That's the most important thing, that if, if you're meditating on a subject and one thought brings you to make an act of love, then don't think about anything else. Just go with that act of love. Converse with our Lord more intimately about that one one thing that moved you. Don't think that you have to keep going on to point two, point three, point three, you know, four and point five. That's the whole mistake that we talked about with the vocal prayer issue is that you're reading a prayer and you get through halfway and you feel inspired to stop and to actually just maybe just adore God, just thank him for something, just talk to him. But you go, no, I'll talk to you later. I'm going to finish this prayer. And here is God going, well, I'm giving you a grace here and you're, 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 you're keep moving on. It's the same thing with meditation. If you're going through and you feel inspired to talk to God for the whole rest of the time, then don't, you don't have to think about anything else. It's done its job. It got you to the point to make an act of the will, act of love, act of ho- faith, act of hope, charity, whatever. Um, so it's almost like God is saying, well, okay, talk to me. Right. And right. then you say, well, okay, well, just put, you put them on hold. And yeah. now you're going yeah, back I'm to... I'm thinking about you right now. Yeah. No, I want you to talk to me. Yeah. You know, and that's the problem with us. We talk so much about prayer. That we do very little praying. We talk so much about God. We don't talk to God. Hmm. <clears throat> and this is what happens over and over in our prayers, even our vocal prayers. We're saying the words, but we're not actually directing them to a real person. Hmm. And it's it may be very subtle. I think it's I think it's very real problem. And I find myself doing that sometimes, where you're just saying grace, right? Let's say, for example, before a meal, you say grace real quickly. And it's just by rote. You're just saying it. But this struck me when I was in the monastery and we were doing just grace before meals and you become so routine. Oh, yeah. But then it struck me. Am I actually, actually thankful? Am I actually hmm. addressing God or am I just saying something? And when you get to the point where you're actually in the presence of a real person, you're actually addressing God as though he is a real person. Yeah. Treat him as a real person right beside you, understanding exactly what you're thinking and, and feeling and, and everything perfectly. It makes prayer so much simpler. It will make meditation so much simpler. Hmm. And the same thing, if you're thinking about God and you come to a point where you're actually talking to God, stop thinking about God, you know, in a discursive, methodical reasoning type of way mm-hmm. and make it more personal. Well, you know, I it, just this whole conversation, it strikes me back to uh, thinking about Mary Magdalene, because she ended up as a contemplative living in a cave, and she was definitely not an intellectual. There's no way you could call her that, because in the society she grew up in, women didn't even go to school. So she probably could not even read and write. And yet, at the end, she became this great contemplative, and so... It has to be something that's within the reach of the average person. As you were saying, you know, it's not like the 1950s anymore. We don't have people that have been trained to think. And so many of us have grown up watching television, which is the great de-thinker or or brain softener. And the average person today is not capable of the same level of thought as the average person of the 1950s. It just strikes me, talking about all this, that we would be better off 
having some kind of a method geared to the Mary Magdalene's of the world rather than the, the high intellectuals. Mm. I mean, certainly I don't disparage the high intellectuals because that's good for them. I mean, let them use a method that goes on all these points and is very structured. That's great. It probably works well for them. But I would wonder whether most of us are sort of on the level of Mary Magdalene, not being great thinkers, but just wanting to know God better. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. And again, to strengthen this just a little bit more, I want to read something from St. Teresa of Avila, who said ah. the exact same thing, but she's a great authority in prayer. Right. She said, the first thing I wish to discuss as far as my limited understanding will allow is the nature of the essence of perfect prayer. For I have come across some people who believe that the whole thing consists in thought. And thus, if they were able to think a great deal about God, however much the effort may cost them, they immediately imagine they are spiritually minded. While if they become distracted and their efforts to think of good things fail, they at once become greatly discouraged and suppose themselves to be lost. I do not mean that it is, it is not a favor from the Lord if any of you is able to continually meditate upon his works. And it is good for us to try to do this. But it must be recognized that not everyone has by nature an imagination capable of meditating, whereas all souls are capable of love. I have written elsewhere of what I believe to be the reasons for this wandering of the imagination, and so I am not discussing that now. I am only anxious to explain that the soul is not thought, nor is the will controlled by thought. It would be a great misfortune if it was. I think she meant the soul of meditation. The soul's profit, then, consists not in thinking much, but in loving much. Mm -hmm. And that's the bottom line in regard to prayer. So the method that I recommend most of all is more or less the Benedictine way mm -hmm. of meditation. And it's really meditative spiritual reading. Mm. That's all it is. It's called Lexio Divina, Divine Lessons. And the way that, that Benedictines do spiritual reading, it is meant to be a slow, prayerful, reflective type of spiritual reading that doesn't try to rush through things. Mm. So today, I think sometimes these more methodical guidelines and forms would just issue in distractions, would just be more or less fruitless for most people. Mm -hmm. If it helps you, if you can use these type of outlines and they help you form acts of the will and you can stay, stay concentrated, that's great. But I think the best way today is simply get a book, open it, a good spiritual book, not a controversial book. Too many people today, Catholics, they read, but all they read is controversial theology. Yeah, like how bad Vatican II is. Right, right. And yeah. there's only so much you can read about that and hear about it. People want to know how to love God and how to, how to grow. In. So what kind of spiritual books would you recommend for this? There's books out there definitely. Like Lives of the Saints? Or? No, not Lives of the Saints. More of a dealing with principles on the spiritual life that are peppered with more conversation with God. Okay. Uh, the Imitation of Christ could be used. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. The Gospels definitely could be used. Scripture could be used. The Psalms can be used as spiritual reading. The, the works of St. Alphonsus. There's many other spiritual books. All the authors that I've quoted can be used. There's an author called Father Joseph Shrivers. Mm -hmm. uh, CSSR, I believe. Okay. A Redemptorist. His books are excellent. Beautiful to meditate on. They're solid with doctrine, but also very effective. They move the will. They're very, they're all on fire, really. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote a book called The Gift of Oneself that uh, Tan has reprinted. I highly recommend that book. 
And I think those books by Father Lean. Father Lean are, is really good. What's his? Edward Lean? Yeah, Father Edward Lean. L-E-E-N. Uh, yeah, L-E-E-N. His books could be used for meditation, definitely. He's a little bit more intellectual. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't seem to have too many uh, sort of lowbrow books. Yeah, he doesn't have things that are more appealing to the will sometimes. You can use them, especially the book in the likeness of Christ, because he's dealing with, you know, these events in the life of Christ. That would be best for meditation Hmm. because, you know, you can read a paragraph and get a lot of thought out of there. Okay. It's definitely out there. But again, spiritual reading is is the best way. Books about our Lord would be really good. Mm Mm-hmm. I highly recommend The Public Life of Our Lord Jesus Christ by uh, Archbishop Alvin Goodyear. Oh, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful work. And if if that doesn't move your will to love our Lord, I don't know what will. I don't know what. Mm. It, it's tremendous. If you read it slowly, and that's the key. Read it slowly. Don't try to rush through, oh, I got 30 pages left. I want to get through this so I can get to the next book. That really kills prayer. And this whole thing about re- using a book St. Teresa of Abel had to do that. This is what she said about this. During all these years, except after communicating, I never dared to begin to pray without a book. It seemed to me in these early stages of which I am speaking that provided I had books and could be alone, there's no risk of me being deprived of that great blessing. She said also, to use a book written in the vernacular is another very useful means of holding discourse with the Lord. While reading it, your mind will become more easily recollected, and you will feel better disposed to prayer. Hmm. And St. Francis de Sales also recommended the same. He said, touching meditation, I pray you not to, to distress yourself, if sometimes, and even very often, you do not find consolation in it. Go quietly on with humility and patience, not on this account doing violence to your spirit. Use your books when you find your soul weary. That is to say, read a little and then meditate, then read again a little and meditate until the end of your half hour. Mother Teresa, which St. Teresa of Avila at the time, thus acted in the beginning and said that she found it a, a very good plan for herself. And since we are speaking in confidence, I will add that I have also also tried it myself and found it good for me. So the saints used books. Hmm. So we shouldn't feel bad that we have to use them as a guide. They focus your mind. You don't have to come up with your own thoughts. That's very difficult. For mm-hmm. someone who doesn't have a lot of material on their, on their own, who hasn't yeah. been maybe uh, like a religious who's heard all this before, has a right. lot of material in their head, their imagination has been just fed over the years with all the the life of Christ over and over. And even then it's difficult when you've heard, you know, as as a religious myself, we had so much public reading. We got through so many books, public reading during Compline and during meals, we had, you know, spiritual reading. Mm. You hear things constantly. It's all in your head. And it's even difficult for me if I just had to sit down and think about a subject, you know, talk about an hour of a subject without preparation. I can, you know, that's difficult, even mm-hmm. though I've heard things for years and years, let alone if you had someone off the street and you say, OK, meditate on uh, the goodness of God. You're like, well, you know, you may come up with two sentences, <laughs> but you're not going to you know, get much out of it. And that's what helps with a book is that you don't have to be distracted by your own ignorance. Oh, yeah. yeah. You can just you can just focus on what's in front of you. Take each sentence try to just ponder it, try to pull some kind of meaning out of it. And then when you're done with that sentence, you can't get anything more from that, move on. But don't feel that you have to rush through. 
And that's the beauty of Benedictine spiritual reading, Lexio Divina, is that the monks were not concerned with quantity, with getting more and more books done. It's easy to fall into curiosity. It's easy to fall into go, I, I, I want to get this book done so I can take out another one. Or see but, how it ends. Or right. And that's yeah. so inimical, so an enemy of prayer. If you just read slowly, God has put into that book a message for you. And I think that's the best way of meditating today, to be honest. I'm not going to recommend this or that method, uh, like the St. Ignatius method or St. Sulpice or St. Francis de Sales. Just get a book. Get a book. Go slowly through a good book on the spiritual life, a devotional type book, and you'll pull a lot of fruit from there. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. On prayer, two books that I recommend. I've already referenced one is Difficulties in Mental Prayer by Father Eugene Boylan, eventually Abbot Eugene Boylan, Cistercian monk. And this was published in 1943. You'll find a lot of copies. I think it's it's more available. I'm pretty sure it's uh, reprinted as well. It's a small book, 130 pages, but there's so much practical advice. And this will lead you to contemplation. It will give you the practical advice. I highly recommend it. Another great book is called The Conversation with Christ by Father Peter Thomas Rohrbach, who was a, a Carmelite priest. And this is the subtitle is The Teaching of St. Teresa of Avila about personal prayer. And he goes through meditation. He, he gives St. Teresa of Avila's method of mental prayer is very similar to St. Ignatius's here. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe more, a little bit more simplified a, a bit. He stresses the point over and over exactly what I've been saying is that the method is only a means to an end and you can totally simplify it. If the preparation distracts you, then go briefly over that. Skip that. If this part is not helping, then skip it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> use what helps. You, uh, use the best and leave the rest. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're totally right. free to do that. So it's basically, I mean, there's so much you could say on meditation. I think that's all we need to say. Before we go, though, I I did want to read something I found from St. Catherine of Siena. That it's not directly dealing with meditation, but because all these shows really are just about prayer in general. So it will definitely apply. It's more in reference to vocal prayer. And it really confirms what I was saying in in the last episode about God being more concerned with the quality of the prayer rather Mm -hmm. than the quantity of vocal prayers that we say. Mm -hmm. And as well as the idea of when you're in the middle of of a prayer, a formula type prayer, and you feel inspired to pray, that you should stop and actually don't keep talking and and, uh, don't keep just reciting words that you're reading. And this is from St. Catherine of Siena's Dialogues, which is a conversation with the Eternal Father. So, you know, I don't like to go to private revelations for things, but at the very least, it's St. Catherine of Siena, a great, great mystic. Mm -hmm. And she wrote this, and this is the Eternal Father speaking to her. From imperfect vocal prayer, by persevering in the exercise, the soul will come to perfect mental prayer, which is infused contemplation. But it will never be able to reach this point if it merely tries to add to the number of its vocal prayers and deserts mental prayer for them. There are souls so ignorant that when they set themselves to recite a certain number of prayers, although I then visit them in many different ways, they are unwilling to receive my visit lest they interrupt that which they have begun. This, unless such prayers are of obligation, is a manifest error. As soon as then, as they are aware of my visit, 
they ought to suspend their devotions. Perfect prayer is not acquired with many words, but with the affection of desire which rises up to me, with self-knowledge and knowledge of my goodness, and thus it will be vocal and mental prayer at the same time. Unquote. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you very much, Father, for spending the time with us today. As always, uh, we've got so much that we can listen to again and again in this show. We can chew on to pardon upon. We can meditate on what you've given us mm -hmm. and you've given us some great ideas to improve our own meditation and, and to get deeper into actual prayer. And as we close uh, out this episode, uh, we've covered today meditation. And I want to thank Father Bernard Lee for his time. And we'll talk to you again next month as we continue this series. God bless you. If you have any questions for Father Bernard or feedback on this episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at spirituallife at truerestoration.org, and we will pass on your questions or comments to Father Bernard. And we'd also like to take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work is prayer. <laughs> 